We are studying the letter that Paul wrote to his young associate Titus during the course of these middle summer months. And this morning, we come to chapter 2. I'll be reading the first 10 verses. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Part of being human is to aspire to greatness. It's wired into us. It's one thing that makes us different from the animal kingdom. We aspire to greatness. When I was saved as a teenager, I defined, before that time, I defined greatness as playing center field for the Pittsburgh Pirates or playing guitar for Dire Straits. That would have been greatness to me. That's what I would have dreamed of. That's what I aspired to. But then the Lord saved me and began the long, slow process of reprogramming my aspirations. And I started to think about what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God. And so, as I understood it, that meant being a preacher of God's word, a teacher of God's word, a leader in the church. I aspired to greatness in the kingdom of God instead of in the world. But my first churches were small, struggling churches that seemed to make little impact on the world. And I felt like I was making little impact on the world. I didn't feel very great in the kingdom. Well, then in God's providence, I got connected with a prominent PCA pastor, leader named Harry Reeder. Harry had just started a program, a series of national seminars for leadership in our denomination and other denominations that focused on teaching the principles of revival and revitalization to small struggling churches like mine. And after I went to some of his training, he actually came, Harry came, visited my church, got to know me. He invited me to come the next year and speak at his national conference in front of a thousand men. Later, he had me speak at our denominational annual meetings during the luncheon in the middle of the week. He had me stand up and speak to the men who came. I was asked by my presbytery to speak. I was asked to go and consult with a church in New Jersey, a church, a church in a different presbytery, to come and consult about these principles. And I thought, finally, this is it. 
I've got my opportunity. I'm going to be great in the kingdom of God. And then as quickly as it came into my life, it left. And I had no more speaking opportunities, no chances to write about it. I went on and have continued on from that point to be an ordinary pastor in an ordinary church, just like this one. You see, I had to learn that I can't just apply my desire, my aspirations for greatness. I can't just apply it in the church but on the same terms that I applied it in the world. In the world, to aspire for greatness means to be thought well of by other people. For other people to think you're great, whatever that means in your circles. In the kingdom of God, it's about God thinking you're great. God's definition of the greatness that he has called us to. And what you learn over the course of your life is that those two standards are very, very different. What is greatness in the kingdom of God? That's the key question for this morning. What is greatness in the kingdom of God? It's not seeking admirers. It's seeking to meet God's standard for greatness. What's interesting is when you study what Jesus says in the Gospels, he doesn't discourage that desire for greatness that is wired into us. He doesn't discourage it. He just redefines what it looks like. Let me just use the Sermon on the Mount as an example. The Sermon on the Mount is about kingdom greatness. That's what it's about. He starts it with the, 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 uh, the uh, statements of blessing, the statements of reward, the statements of what it looks to like to be great in his kingdom. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who aspire for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. And then at the close of that section, he says, whoever does God's commandments and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does God's commandments and teaches them will be called great. You see, what you see, if you study the Sermon on the Mount carefully, you realize is what the world calls greatness is really the opposite in many cases of what God calls greatness in his kingdom. The first shall be last, the last shall be At Titus' mission, Titus was sent by the Apostle Paul to the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea to put in order churches, churches that had just been established by the preaching of the gospel. They could not only survive but thrive in a very dark, difficult situation in that culture. And we saw back in chapter 1 that the first step in strengthening those churches was to, to uh, identify and to ordain elders to lead the church well. And we saw that when Paul said, when Timothy, or Titus, when you go to look for elders, here's the kind of men you're to look for. You're not to focus on their skills. I said this a couple weeks ago, that in the qualifications that Paul gives to Titus and also to Timothy of what elders and deacons should look like, the officers of the church, he gives about 17 different characteristics. 15 of the 17 characteristics deal with the character, with the heart issues. Only two deal with skills, teaching and managing. That's how important the character is for leadership. In other words, those who keep God's commands then are able to teach God's commands. It's got to start with the heart. 
Greatness is Christ-likeness in the kingdom of God. Notice, interestingly, that when Paul, in the passage we looked at at the end of chapter 1 last week, when Paul talks about false teachers, he's trying to help Titus and the elders and the people in the congregation to recognize the false teachers. What does he talk about? He talks about their character. He describes them as insubordinate, deceivers, defiled, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. He talks about their lack of Christ-like character. That's how you know a false teacher. Well, here in chapter 2, Paul then takes it to the next level. Okay, once you've established the elders, once the, the teaching of the apostolic doctrines have been put in place, now you need to train the people. And so he's telling Titus how to train the people in the congregation to prepare them for greatness, which means preparing them to be Christ-like. Paul describes this process over in Ephesians 4 in this way, that God raises up elders, pastors, teachers to equip the saints to attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Elders sometimes forget that's the job that they have been called to. To equip the saints to reach the fullness of the maturity which is defined by Christ-likeness. You see, the characteristics that we're going to look at here that the members of the churches should exhibit are very similar to the characteristic that the elders were to reflect. Because, as we said last week, the elders are the example. They are to teach the word, but they are to be examples of what they teach so that they can impart the same characteristics through the teaching of the word, through the power of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the people in the churches, people sitting in the pews. Now, all this talk about obeying God's command Striving to be Christ-like. You may ask the question, where's the gospel in all this? We're saved by grace, not by works. Where's the gospel? Well, come back next week because that's Pastor Ben's sermon at the end of chapter 2. I'm going to read that section for you just to give you a little preview of next week. But that's where the very clear teaching of the gospel. What Paul's doing in the beginning of chapter 2 is assuming the gospel. But then he expresses it clearly at the end. So I'll start reading in verse 11 where we left off. For the grace of God has appeared. Now, I want you to listen to what the purpose of Christ's coming is, as Paul describes it here. For the grace of God has appeared, speaking of Christ, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Yes, he died for your sins. He died to rescue you from hell, from an eternity of God's wrath and condemnation. Yes, that's why he died but he died to make you into a people who are zealous to keep the law of God, who are zealous to do good works, who are zealous to look like Christ. That's the purpose of salvation. Once we're saved by grace, it's all Christ's work that saves us. But once he has saved us, he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's mission is to conform you into the image of Christ. That's what the rest of your life is about. And yes, we strive, we work, we sacrifice, we learn, 
But as Paul reminds us in the book of Philippians, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul calls these traits in the Galatians chapter 5, he calls them the fruit of the Spirit. Because the fruit only grows if the life is there to begin with. Dead trees don't bear fruit. If you've been made alive in Christ, then you will bear fruit. You see, that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit being in you. Those whom he saves, he gives the gift of the Spirit, and if the Spirit is in you, then that's the Spirit's work, is to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Good works aren't what you do to be saved, it's what saved people do. That's what the Scriptures teach. So, with that in mind, with that broader understanding, let's look at what Paul says about pursuing Christ-likeness, or pursuing kingdom greatness. And I want you to notice, as Paul begins, before he gets to his list of character traits, he starts with the foundation of those traits. The foundation of greatness is God's word. In other words, kingdom greatness begins in your mind as you receive, accept, and trust in God's word. In verse 1, he says, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He's talking about teaching how to live the Christian life, how to live like Christ. But he wants them, Titus to understand from the beginning that this is what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, if sound doctrine is taught, this is what should follow. Biblical understanding should lead to transformed character. Last week, we looked at this process. This is how it works in the life of a sinner like you and me. God's word, as the Holy Spirit enables us to understand it and receive it, God's word teaches us our theology, our understanding of who God is and who we are and what the world's all about. That's where we get our theology from is the God's word. And then based on that theology, that biblical theology, we develop a worldview. And out of that worldview, we determine our values. And based upon our values, we make choices in life. And our choices are what produce our actions, our good works. This is how it works. This is how the process begins. It's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not seek greatness in this world, he's saying, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you get that? You are saved so that your mind will be transformed with a different theology, a different worldview, a different set of values. Your mind will be transformed so that you are able to discern what God's will is, his good and perfect will for your life, so that you can keep the commandments, so that you could live a Christ-like life. Well, then let's look at some of the evidences of kingdom greatness. What do people who are great in the kingdom of God look like according to Paul's list here? And again, I can't, I don't have time to, to, to dwell on each one of the characteristics. What I've done is kind of combined them into similar ones, some of the similar characteristics. First of all, one that might be kind of surprising to you, and this is interesting because he breaks it down for just what this means is that applying this looks different depending on what stage of life which are, you're in. He talks about older men and older women. He talks about younger men and younger women. He talks about slaves, servants. It's going to look different in your context, how you apply God's word 
But it, the, the true characteristics at the core of it are going to be the same, no matter what your calling, no matter what your stage of life, no matter what your gender. Is actually probably the one that surprised me the most as I started to dig into it. The first one that actually shows up early in the list is dignity. He uses different words for it, again, similar words, but he says older men are to be sober-minded, dignified. He says older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. In verse 7, he says that Titus and the younger men under his instruction are to be a model of dignity again. So I looked at the original, the word in the original Greek and started looking at different ways in which it can be accurately translated into English, and you come up with some synonyms which help you understand what the word's getting at. Other valid English translations for the word dignity would be grave. Grave in the sense of seriousness. Another word that I liked was nobility. There should be an air of nobility among God's people. Christians should have a demeanor that reflects our status as being sons and daughters of the king of the universe. Your demeanor should reflect that. The way you interact with life, the way you interact with people, the way you respond to trials. Now, this doesn't preclude a sense of humor. It doesn't preclude a lightheartedness in appropriate settings. But there should be a weightiness to your character. I think one English word that summarizes all the terms well is gravitas. There should be a gravitas. That, you should, that should be a characteristic of a believers, all believers, no matter what your status in life. When I think of gravitas, there's one individual that jumps to my mind immediately every time. It's a great man, great in the kingdom of God, who used to be my systematic theology professor in seminary. Also happened to be my wife's uncle, but that's just a side point. Truly great man, loved the Word of God, humble, deeply humble man, effective in teaching the Word of God, lived it well. But what really struck me is how he handled himself among other church leaders. I sat in many presbytery meetings, which are the districts of our denomination. I sat in many presbytery meetings in a room full of elders. And once a controversial issue or debatable issue is brought up on the floor of the presbytery, Typically what happens with human nature is you have men running to the mic to spout off their opinion on this subject. And some men are more willing to do that, more anxious, more eager to do that than others. But you have some things that are being said that are helpful, some things that aren't. But the debate goes on and on, and we have procedures to kind of rein in the debate when it gets silly and, and everybody gets really tired of it. And that would happen in these presbytery meetings. But what was consistently true is that Dr. Spear, my wife's uncle, this systematic theology professor, he would sit in the back of the room and he'd sit there quietly. Wouldn't say a word. Everybody's giving all their opinions. Debate goes on and on. When everybody gets tired, somebody starts making motions to stop the debate. He would stand up and give his assessment of the whole debate. He'd sit there and listen to everything. He'd applied the word of God to it. And he stands up and he gives an eloquent speech about what, how everybody should think about this issue and what the right decision is. And immediately everybody would vote his way. That's gravitas. That's a weightiness of character that is earned through kingdom greatness. The qualities of Christ-likeness that produce respect within the kingdom that's an appropriate respect. You know what the Bible calls us? 
And you're going to wince the same way I wince when I hear it. The Bible calls us saints. It's not a label we wear very comfortably, is it? But the Bible continuously calls us saints, which means holy ones. We represent the holiness of God. There should be a gravitas to that. There should be a weightiness to that. There should be a nobility to that. We are God's saints. We are prince and princesses in his kingdom. We should have a noble air, an air of eternity about us. The second characteristic, I'm not going to call it a category because he says it blatantly and he says it to all four groups, the young, older women and the older men and the younger men and the younger women, all four of them are told to be self-controlled. And that shouldn't surprise you because Paul is always telling Christians to be self-controlled. It's in almost every list that he gives of the characteristics. So you better pay attention to this one. He gives it almost every list of characteristics of Christians. Be self-controlled. It's interesting, he doesn't actually use the word with the older women, if you notice. He doesn't use the word self-control there, but he tells them to learn to control their tongues. Don't be slanderers. Don't be spreading gossip. And he tells them to control their intake of wine. Don't be drunkards. So he's talking about self-control, and I know he expects them to be self-controlled because he then tells them to teach the younger women to be self-controlled. You can't teach what you don't have. Teach the younger women to be self-controlled. Simple point, wish I had more time to dwell upon it, but it's this simple. Christians should be masters of their thoughts. Christians should be masters of their desires. Christians should be masters of their appetites. As Paul said, I will not be mastered by anything because Christ is my master. Self-control is the path to greatness in the kingdom of God. That's what Paul is saying. I do want to point out that he kind of shouts the message at young men. If you look at verse 7, now he will talk about other attributes young men should, should exhibit, but that's in verse 8 where he says, Titus, I want you to be a model of these things to the young men. But when he speaks to the young men directly, he says one characteristic, only one. He didn't give a list. Young men, be self-controlled. I suspect it's because he knows what young men are like. I know what I was like as a young man. I think more obviously than any other sinners, young men struggle to master their desires, to master their thoughts, to master their anger, to master their desire for sex, to master their control issues, be self-controlled. And I think the reason he singles out young men, even though all of us are to strive for that, is because he knows the damage it does if you don't control it when you're young. If you don't control your desires and your appetites when you're young, look out. You're setting yourself up for great damage in the future and a damage to other people. Be self-controlled. Then he talks about service in a number of different ways. And it should not surprise you again that to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to be a servant. Jesus taught it bluntly. You can't say it any more plainly than what Jesus says in Matthew 20, verse 26. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Servant, being a servant, is the path to greatness in the kingdom of God. Paul tells the older men to be sound in love. Of course, love in the sense of putting the needs of others before your own. Serving other people, that's what love looks like. Be sound in love, he says to the older men. The older women are to teach the young women to love their husbands and children and to be submissive to their own husbands. 
And he tells Titus and the young men to be, tells Titus to be a model of good works for the young men. A model of good works, service. I do want to point out, he says that young women are to be working at home. That may be controversial to some. I don't think he's saying women can't work outside the home in many different circumstances. I think what he's saying is, young women, make your family and your household your priority. Make it your priority. Love your husband well. Love your children well. Serve in the home. Make that your first priority. Because that's what the world's going to tell you, is what you do in the home is not important. That serving your husband and your children and managing your household, that that's not important, but that's not the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, I don't believe there is any higher calling under maybe possibly elder. I don't think there's any other higher calling in the world than to be a mother loving her husband well and loving her children well and managing her household well. The tremendous impact in shaping and forming children into the image of Christ by the help of the Holy Spirit is a very high, high calling. And it is a path to greatness. You want to be great in the eyes of God? Love others well. And then, speaking of service, it's interesting to me that Paul does include slaves or servants. And the reason I say slave or servant is because in the original language, the word there means in some context servants, or the word in the ESV here is bond servant. What that means is more of a, it's more like an employee in a sense, or treated like an employee. But in many other contexts, it means literally slave in the same sense that we use the word slave. In both cases, whether they were seen more as servants or seen as slaves, in both cases, they were property. They were owned by their master. And they had no human rights. It was an evil system. It's an evil system that almost every culture in the history of the world has had, but it's evil. It does not speak to the dignity that human beings were created in and certainly that we are redeemed into in Christ. Some slaves were treated well. Some slaves were abused mercilessly and harshly. It all depended on what kind of master you had. And slavery was deeply embedded in that culture. Sometimes people say, well, why didn't Paul and the other apostles, why didn't they condemn slavery if it's that evil, if it's that wrong? You need to understand, Paul and the other apostles were writing to the churches. They're not writing to governors, not writing to emperors. They're not trying to change the political system or the judicial system. They're saying, Christians, you are stuck in this situation. And let me tell you, slaves were stuck. There was no abolition movement. There was no legal recourse. They were stuck. They had no choice. And so Paul is saying, here's how you ought to live. You want to be great, be great through service. And here's what your service looks like as a, as a slave. You see, this is the power of the gospel. It transforms cultures by transforming sinful hearts. Paul trusted the Holy Spirit to destroy slavery. If he had had some legal recourse, if he had had some senator to write to or representative to write to, or some president to appeal to, he would have done it. But he's writing to Christians saying, you're stuck as a slave. How are you going to live? He says, be the best servant you can be. Be like Christ. And that's how you're going to change the culture. As Paul says in Romans 12, verse 21, do not 
be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a really hard message for a slave. Overcome evil with good. So he says to slaves, submit to your masters. Of course, assuming, as he does elsewhere in Scripture, that that's as unto the Lord. So if your master requires something of you that Christ would not require of you, you need to obey Christ and not men. But submit to your masters as unto the Lord and do good work, he says. Don't argue. Don't be resistant. Don't be rebellious. Don't steal. Don't bring dishonor to Christ. That's the path to greatness even for Ephesians 6 because this is where Paul elaborates on this. And I want you to notice that he talks to both slaves and their masters. And I want you, as I read this passage to you, I want you to think about how if Christian slaves and Christian masters took Paul's teaching to heart, how slavery would have been gone immediately, at least in those households. This is what Paul says. Bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Christian slaves and Christian masters would bring slavery to an end because it's not consistent with greatness in the kingdom of God. Well, having talked about greatness and these character traits that bring the reward of the Lord, the greatness in the kingdom of God, I want to remind you as we draw this thing to a close, what is the goal of aspiring to greatness? What's the goal of it? Because we all live for glory. Every single person you know lives for glory. The only question is, do you live for your own glory or do you live for the Lord's glory? And that's why, you know, unbelievers can reflect some of these traits. Matter of fact, to one degree or another, these traits can, you'll see it in unbelievers. Unbelievers can show you varying levels of dignity or self-control or love or patience. But sinners are always driven. The goal of their aspiration for glory is always their own glory. They will be patient for their own glory. They will be self-controlled for their own glory. They will be kind to others and serve others for their own glory. You see, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they understand it or not, it's always about their own reputation, their own status in the eyes of others. They live for their own glory. But Paul keeps repeating that our sanctification, our Christ-likeness is for God's glory and not ours. It's all about God's glory. Our lives are about the reputation of Jesus Christ, the reputation of the gospel and the reputation of the church. That's the goal. That's what we focus on as we pursue these character traits. Notice how Paul says it three times. I don't know if you picked up on it. In this passage, in 10 verses, three times, he says, that's why we are to be like Christ. He says in verse 5, to young women, they are to be Christ-like that the word of God may not be reviled. In verse 8, he says, young men are to be Christ-like so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And in verse 10, he says that slaves are to be Christ-like so that every, in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I love that phrase. You make a commitment in your membership vow to adorn the doctrine of the gospel. 
The word adorn in the original language means to lay out jewels in a way to display their beauty. Adorn the doctrine of God in your service, in your patience, in your love, in your dignity. Adorn the reputation of Christ and the gospel in the church. In the Old Testament, Israel was repeatedly condemned because their rebelliousness and their idolatry obscured the glory of God. How many times was that one of the main messages of the prophets? You have brought dishonor upon the name of God by your rebellion, your sin, your idolatry. And not only that, you have caused the pagan nations to mock the name of the one true God. That's, the, the prophecies of the Old Testament are full of that. And Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah in Romans chapter 2 in condemning the unbelieving Jews of his own day when he says there, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You see, God is all about his own glory. He calls us to aspire to greatness in his kingdom for his glory. That makes God sound prideful, doesn't it? It's not prideful if your glory is the essence of truth and beauty and power and goodness. God's glory is the treasure of the entire universe. The whole universe revolves around the glory of God. And so when he says that we are to live for his glory, it is our joy to show the world how great he is, because in finding out how great he is and reflecting upon and enjoying his glory, they find life and meaning and truth and purpose. That's why it's important that our behavior not bring dishonor to the name and to the glory of God. It's all about resemblance in the family and reputation of the family. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's so important that we express our love for Jesus by keeping his commandments. Whoever abides in me, he says, he it is who bears much fruit. We represent him. Reminds me of that old preacher story, which I'm sure you've, if you've been in the church very long, you've heard a preacher use this at some point. It's a, like I said a couple weeks ago, there's illustrations you'll hear over and over because they effectively communicate the truth, and I, I think this story does. It's about the, the, the father who sees his son grabbing the car keys and starting to walk out the door and he grabs him by the arm and he says, wait a minute, son, I want to say something before you go. I worked hard my whole life to build a good name in this community, a respectable name. You're taking that name with you when you go out into the community. You better bring it back in as good a condition or better than when you left here. In a sense, that's what the Lord says to you every morning. You go out into the world bearing the name of Christ. You better reflect his glory well. Don't bring shame to the gospel. Don't bring shame to the church. Don't bring shame to Jesus Christ by disobeying the law. Jesus said to his disciples in that same Sermon on the Mount that we talked about a moment ago, you are the light of the world. You, God's people, you sinners saved by grace, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill, set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people who light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and what? Give 
Glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the purpose. That's the goal of your aspirations of greatness in the kingdom of God, is that God would get the glory. Our words and our good works show people how great the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are. There's a lie that our culture keeps foisting upon our children. I see it everywhere. You can be anything you want to be. Believe in yourself. You can be anything you want to be. That's the hope they set before our children. It's a lifelong pursuit of something that is rarely achieved and never satisfying even when it is. I said to somebody after the first service, I used the illustration of wanting to play center fielder for the Pirates. Like, what kind of glory does that bring these days? <laughs> and I also know, I read a lot about players' lives, and I know that the glory of Major League Baseball does not bring satisfaction. It does not bring blessing. It brings a hard life. David Brooks wrote in his most recent common column this week in the New York Times, he wrote, he said that Americans, his observation was, Amer Americans see life as a game to play and a game to win instead of a story to be lived out. And he actually didn't elaborate on that except for the second, or the first part about life being a game. The Americans see life as a game because it's a game to play to get status. He says that we live to win instead of living for a higher purpose. And that people are driven by a desire for status in the eyes of others. And he calls that the mother motivation that can be never satisfied. And we can shake our heads and agree with that, but how often do we as Christians do the same thing to our own kids and to the people around us? You work hard, go to a respectable school, get a respectable wife or a respectable husband, raise respectable children, live in a respectable neighborhood, develop a respectage of the kingdom of God and what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. We do not live for the admiration of others. We do not live for worldly status. The American dream is all about our glory and not God's glory. For God's children, here's your simple lesson, the simple takeaway. For God's children, greatness equals Christ-likeness. And that's why Christ saved you, is to make you like Christ. No matter what your worldly status may be, no matter how low or high you are in the eyes of the world, to be great is to reflect the glory of Christ by displaying the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and yes, self-control. Let's pray. Father, it's such a high calling to represent Christ and his kingdom with our words and our good works. And Lord, we fail so often. I've failed already this morning many times. And yet your grace is new every morning, every moment. The blood of Christ is sufficient to cover our sin. And so Lord, we pray that as we consider this high calling, as we seek to inflame this desire for greatness in the kingdom that you have placed within us. I pray, Lord, that you never allow us to forget what the definition of greatness looks like in the eyes of Christ. Please continue your good work of transforming us into his image. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.